All right. Um, if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Leviticus chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 32, um, the section on the Day of Atonement. Although we really won't be spending much time in Leviticus 23 because there are a bunch of places that we're going to bounce to that zoom in a little bit more on the Day of Atonement than the place that we've actually sort of camped for the last few weeks. So we're going to be bouncing between Leviticus This is Leviticus 23. We're going to be bouncing between Leviticus 10, Leviticus 16, Hebrews 9, and 10, okay? So you can kind of, as we go, you can kind of put your fingers or a bookmark or something in all those places as we as we walk through them because we're going to be hitting a bunch of different verses. But in Leviticus 23, starting in verse 26, it says, The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves, and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day, because it is the day of atonement, when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. There is to be an everlasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. All right, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we open up your word, we ask that uh, you would teach your people by the power of your spirit, according to your word. God, that we would see the beautiful picture uh, that is demonstrated here of your son, Jesus Christ, and the atonement that he has accomplished for us um, as we see it prefigured and foreshadowed uh, in the Old Testament, God, and that we see its fulfillment um, in his coming in the New Testament. God, help us to, um, God, see the beautiful um, order and symmetry that you have uh, demonstrated to us in your word. God, that we can see your plan stretched throughout uh, the centuries. Um, God, that this would give us um, boldness and encouragement in our faith as we, as we uh, trust everything of our lives to Jesus Christ. God, that we would know him uh, more truly. Uh, God, that we would... Uh, obey him more faithfully and that our, our hearts would be stirred up, um, to love and devotion uh, to our savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So, um, so probably all of us have, um, I hate technology. I hate all technology. Uh, I hate cars and I hate computers and I hate all of it. Um, but, We've probably been at some point in our lives where you have had a um, uh, a computer or or an iPad or an iPhone or something like that, and perhaps you had to do this thing that you had to do what's called a hard reset or a factory reset, right? There's usually some way of accomplishing this. Sometimes it's a a special button that you have to hit in a in a sort of a secret way, or sometimes you go in and you and you type some code in on your computer and you hit send and it and it does the whole thing, right? But you do this hard reset or this factory reset. Basically, what that does 
is it takes everything back to square one, right? So a lot of times you've got a bunch of viruses on your computer. You've got all this garbage that has accumulated over time and it's so broken and it's so mixed up and there's, there's, it seems like it's in, unsalvageable, but there's this thing you can do. You can do this factory reset and you can wipe it completely clear and start over at the beginning again. All right. There's a sense in which that is what the day of atonement is about. All right. That is what the day of atonement is about in a way for the people of Israel is they go through a cycle and it is to recognize that cycle of, of they build up sin. They build up defilement. They, they do this. Uh, accidentally and obviously intentionally too in some cases, but they build up this defilement. And then at some point, once a year, essentially there's a factory reset and it is to wipe the slate clean and begin over again and to start the process anew. All right. And so we see this, this, this day occur. It happened once a year. Uh, it happened at the end of the Festival of Trumpets, right? So we've talked about, you know, you have a spring series of festivals. You have the one summer festival of, of Pentecost or weeks, and then you have this uh, fall um, season of festivals. It begins with the 10 days of awe that we talked about last week, the 10 days of repentance, the 10 days of preparing your hearts to meet your God that is the Festival of Trumpets. And then we come to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So that was the special day, and we're going to read about it in just a second out of Hebrews 9, because interestingly, Hebrews 9 gives a pretty succinct summary of what happens in on the Day of, of Atonement. But on that one day was the only day of the year that the high priest was allowed to go into the place of the temple called the Holy of Holies. Probably you guys have got study Bibles and you can look at a picture of the temple in, in your Bible or the picture of the tabernacle. And you'll, you'll remember that as you would come through the entrance way, there was a, a, a first kind of court there called the holy place where you were in the temple. And then there was a curtain, and behind that curtain was the holier place, the holy of holies, okay? The most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant sat. Um, and it was into that section that the high priest alone was only allowed one day of year, the day of Yom Kippur, to enter into that, all right? Yom Kippur became, for the Jewish people, the high holy day. So we've talked about all these Sabbaths, all these festivals that they would observe throughout the year. This is the the biggest one. Okay. It became the most sacred and obviously they're all sacred. They all require devotion and obedience, but this became the one that they saw as the most significant of all of them. This day of atonement. So Hebrews chapter nine and 10 gives sort of a running commentary as, as those who have come to know Christ a New Testament explanation of what's going on at the Day of Atonement. But we see this starting in chapter 9, verse 1 of the book of Hebrews. So it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table of the, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the tablets of the covenant. 
Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only, the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So notice a couple things. Just real quick. First off, there's that line about unintentional sins. That's kind of an interesting phrase, all right? And, and, and the idea that we're getting across there is this. When we read the Old Testament, we talked about it a few weeks ago, there are all these different offerings for sin. So if you had done something that you knew to be sinful and had and, and had actually already done that and recognized that you were supposed to have already gone to the temple and made a sacrifice, a sin offering, a guilt offering or whatever for that intentional sin. But the Day of Atonement is pointing to something even bigger than that. It's basically saying, hey, it's not just that you have sinned, it's that we are sinners, okay? That there is a, a deeper defilement that goes beyond just the conscious way in which we do things wrong sometimes. That there is a bigger defilement that is there that has to be rectified, right? Something has to take place there. And the key other phrase there in verse 7 is this, is that the priest goes into that holy of holies and it says, but not without taking blood, if he's going to enter into the Holy holy of Holies, he has to take blood with him. So this blood was going to be, and as you read these sections that explain the ceremony, this blood was going to be sprinkled on the various instruments that took place or, or were used in the tabernacle or in temple worship, including that place that he mentioned in, in chapter 9, the mercy seat. So the mercy seat is the, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. And basically what it represents is it represents the, the earthly meeting place of God. Okay. It is his throne on earth. Obviously our God is enthroned in the heavens, right? And yet there is this one place on earth where he dwells in a particular way. And it's interesting that we would call that the mercy seat, right? That tells us a whole lot about our God right there, that his throne is called the seat of mercy, right? It's not called uh, the seat of destruction. It's not called the seat of judgment. It's not called the seat of condemnation. It's called the mercy seat, all right? That tells us a whole lot about the character of our God right there. But throughout the course of this, the ceremony of the Day of Atonement, um, uh, the, these offerings, uh, these sacrifices would be offered and the priest would deal with the implements and instruments of, of the temple by sprinkling blood on, on pretty much everything. All right. Now this paints a pretty vivid picture. If we sort of think about what it would actually look like on this day, because one of those places, sometimes when we're reading the, the, the books of, of the Torah, when we're reading Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy and something, we come to these places sometimes. And like, for example, it'll tell you in exquisite detail about what the high priests or the priest's garments were to look like, okay? And there's symbolism in those things and all these different deals, right? But one of the things that we notice is that he's wearing a white linen outfit, okay? He's got a white turban, he's got a white uh, tunic and all the different pieces to it. But this, this pure white linen, this is the same garment that he would wear into onto the Day of Atonement, anytime he, he was engaging in, in uh, ceremonies and worship in the temple. 
But imagine what it would be like to offer these sacrifices wearing this white linen, okay? So just at the very beginning, um, when they sacrifice these animals, so the typical way that you would sacrifice one is, is it, their throat would be slit. And you open up their throat so that they will bleed out, all right? And typically you catch the blood in a bowl. But here's the thing. I don't know if you know about like the way your heart works, but if you like cut a major artery, like it doesn't just like run gently. What it it's squirting out, okay? Um, so imagine the scene. You are a you are a a priest wearing this beautiful white clothing, and as you sacrifice this animal, it's going to start getting all over you. The blood is going to splatter on your face. It's going to splatter on your garment. All right. Even if you could somehow keep clean in that process, then you are to take this bowl of blood and you're to go through the temple and you're taking it and you're sprinkling it on everything. And I mean, so we went on this youth mission trip this week or this conference uh, retreat this weekend. And part of the thing was, is we did a service project and that service project ended up being yard work on one thing, but also staining and painting uh, uh, these buildings at Camp Tipton. All right. And we had this little kid there and he came and he said he was wearing no shoes. He's going to go paint in no shoes. And we said, hey, man, uh, you, you can't n- not wear shoes. And he said, well, I only brought this one pair of shoes and I don't want to get paint on them. And then we were like, well, that's why you were told to bring a pair of shoes that you wouldn't get paint on. Because here's the deal. You're going to get paint on. them. It's just going to happen, man. There's no way you can do this without getting paint. All right. He said, now, well, that's why I don't want to do it. And I'm like, well, that's why you, uh, whatever. Okay. This high priest, by the end of this ceremony, is going to be drenched, covered, splattered in blood. All right. That's a visual picture. Okay. Um, That doesn't look like, you know, Southern Baptist pastor coming up in his, you know, linen suit and, and looking all whatever. Like by the time this priest is done with this thing, he's going to look like he came from a slaughterhouse. He's going to be look like he came from a murder scene. All right. He's going to look, there's going to be this, this picture that is painted there. All right. So here's the deal. Why did God require that? Is this some sort of primitive ancient bloodlust? That, that is being remembered in the, the Israel's, uh, the Jewish faith from something that goes further back. That's what liberal theologians would tell us. When they talk about atonement, when they talk about, um, the sacrifice of blood and the necessity of blood to, to atone for sin, they would say, man, that's from those old timey religions way back in the ancient world, right? That's not, that's not the way things really are. And yet the Bible over and over again talks in that language. Jesus' life is testament to these things. The truth is, is this picture of the high priest covered in blood painted a picture of the consequence of sin. Sin brings death. It brings destruction. Sin isn't this fun, rebellious, naughty act of a child. Sin is Blood-covered, stomach-turning, life-destroying activity. That's the picture painted by the sacrificial system. And moreover, it demands, one, two, two fancy words, expiation and propitiation. All right? Sin demands 
expiation. That is, it has to be atoned for. There has to be a payment made. There has to be something to make up for the offense. It demands that. And moreover, it demands propitiation. That is to say, God is angry about the sin. God is wrathful to the person who has committed the sin. The sin doesn't have to just be paid for, but something must be done to appease God's righteous, holy anger over that sin. Okay? So now, in Leviticus chapter 16, we see this detailed explanation of how you were to go about the Yom Kippur sacrifices. And and we're going to zoom in on three particular points of that. A bull and two goats that are sacrificed on the day um, on, on Yom Kippur. And each of those draws our attention to an important emphasis of the Day of Atonement. But ultimately, it also reveals the inability of that day to actually atone for the sins of the people. All right, so watch this. So the first thing we see is this sacrifice of a bull for the priest and the priestly family. So at the beginning of the sacrifice, uh, the ceremony, the, the priest would sacrifice a bull. They would bring a bull in, just like we said a minute ago, his throat would be cut, the blood would be collected, um, and he would walk into the temple with this blood, bowl of blood in his hand. Now, there's also a ram that is offered at this point for the priest and his family, but it was a burnt offering. And we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the burnt offering was a sort of general uh, demonstration of a person's devotion and worship to God. All right. And so it's not that that, that one is unimportant by any means, but, but it's, it's a little less of our focus in, in what we're talking about here. So there was also a ram that was, was sacrificed, but this bull has a particular um, emphasis because the bull, it says, was for a sin offering. That's why it was sacrificed. Verse 11 of chapter 16 of Leviticus. It says, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. Now, along with that, with this, with this bowl of bull's blood that had been sacrificed, he would also come into the temple or the tabernacle with a, with a censure. Right. And this is basically like the thing, uh, you don't see it. You see it in Catholic churches still sometimes, um, and, uh, Eastern Orthodox, but it is a sort of like a little urn thing, oftentimes on a chain that holds incense and it burns and the smoke and the smell of the incense go through. So, so Aaron would also walk in with this censer, um, which had a particular, uh, incense in it coals taken from the altar itself to to burn the incense. And so it says in verse 12 that he would take the censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony. And why? So that he does not die. Okay, so again, there's a clear picture here. If, if the priest does not do these ceremonies of atonement for himself, he will be killed. And that's a particular, especially with the censure of incense, that's particularly important because of something that had already happened in the history of Israel at this time. 
So what we notice is something interesting at the beginning of chapter 16 of, of the book of Leviticus. So it's about to give us the description of what we're supposed to do on the Day of Atonement, right? And look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Now, that fact seems like it has nothing else to do with the context of the passage. It almost seems like a little date stamp, but it's way more important than that. Because here's the deal. Aaron's two sons had died in a somewhat mysterious incident that is recorded in the book of Leviticus chapter 10. So in chapter 10, I know I'm having you flip around a whole lot, but in Leviticus chapter 10, it says this. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took the censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Okay, so again, we're not exactly sure what happened in the sense that they did something wrong, whether they came in a presumptuous way, and whether they came in a way that they were not authorized to come, um, as not commanded, they were being flippant. We don't know the exact circumstances, but they came in a way that they weren't supposed to. God had told them what they were supposed to do. They ignored that command. They walked into the temple with those censors, and God struck them down. All right? And so what do we, in, in a very general sense, what do we see about that reality? We are seeing the holiness of the Lord. We are seeing that to stand before the Lord, to be a mediator, which is what the high priests were, to be a mediator between God and his people requires perfect obedience and perfect holiness before God. Again, Nadab and Abihu are presented in other places in Scripture as good men. They're not like um, uh, some of the high priests that we see who are wicked and are doing these wicked things and stuff. That's not the picture we have of them. They're good men. They're singled out by God. In fact, compared to Aaron's other sons, Aaron has other sons. And there are several instances where God says, hey, you know, elders that come up and Moses come up and Aaron come up. Hey, and Nadab and Abihu come up. But he doesn't say that to everybody. And so these guys are singled out. And yet, because of their presumption, because of their imperfection in some way, it ends up costing them their lives. So the priest, before he could make any sort of atonement for the people, he had to cleanse himself of all unrighteousness. And so what is that pointing us to? Well, we could talk about a whole lot of things maybe, but, but I want you to realize this, is it's pointing to the idea that, you know what? We need a better priest. We need a better priest. If the priests have got to come to God and go through this ceremony to cleanse themselves, what we need is a priest who is already in right relationship with God. We need a priest who is already in worship, in devotion, in obedience, in right relationship with him. Okay? If there's, yes, if a priest is going to come, he's got to go through these things. But what we need is a situation where you don't have to do that. So what you could say is that this passage is not just pointing us to how to cleanse a priest. 
but to the very fact that priests need to be cleansed at all. We should be, we should have a high priest who comes in holiness to God at all times and doesn't need to be cleansed because he's already righteous. All right, so that's the first picture we see. This one bull has to be sacrificed for the cleansing of the priest and and his household. Then there are these two goats that are brought on the Day of Atonement. Two goats are taken, and then one is randomly chosen between the two to be the goat for Yahweh, to atone for the sins of the people. So it's going to atone for the people, and it's going to be given to Yahweh. And so Leviticus 16 says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. Okay, so notice this interesting fact, and it's something that applies to our life and our understanding of sin. One thing that we notice is the pervasiveness of the defilement of sin. So what I mean by that is um, this goat is sacrificed on behalf of the people, but it is being used to cleanse the temple. Okay, so it says as he goes in with his blood of the goat, he's sprinkling it on the temple. Why? Because the temple has been defiled by the people's defilement. It's like the building itself has caught the defilement that they have brought to it because of their own sin, all right? And so I think this is at the very least a picture of this fact is that that's what sin does, folks. Sin is pervasive in its effects. It never stays isolated, right? The the big lie of sin that every single one of us has probably told ourselves at one point is that my sin doesn't affect anybody else, that I can do this thing or I can believe this thing or I can act this way or I can indulge this lust or I can indulge this fantasy. I can do this and it doesn't hurt anybody else. This is about me. And part of the picture of this passage is to say that is never true. Sin always affects other people and probably more than you would ever imagine. It will reach its way into all kinds of situations, all kinds of relationships. It will hurt family. It will hurt friends. It will hurt reputation. It will hurt others. It is pervasive in its destructive power. And it kills indiscriminately. It hurts indiscriminately. And so the people's sin had to be paid for but they had to be cleansed of, of this through this blood, uh, through the blood of this goat. But it wasn't just them that had to be cleansed. Everything around them had to be cleansed. Now, here's the problem, though. And this is sort of the second thing. If we need a better priest being the first thing that we see with the offering of the bull, here's something else that we see. The problem with the offering of the goat for the sins of the people to Yahweh is it didn't work. It didn't work. It did not atone for the people. It did not cleanse them the way that it should. It did not propitiate. It did not expiate. It did not consecrate. It wasn't enough to cleanse the people of Israel. Hebrews 10 elaborates on that point. So Hebrews 10, chapter chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, 
instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Could you hear that? It's incapable. Those sacrifices can't do what they are, what they are imaging. Okay. It doesn't, it doesn't do it. Verse two, otherwise they would not have ceased to be, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All right, so what does the writer of Hebrews point us to? He says, here's the deal. That sacrifice of the goat for the atonement of the people was never meant to atone for the people because it can't atone for the people. You can't kill a goat and expect that to cleanse the nation of Israel. All it ultimately was there to do is point us and to be a reminder of sin to be a reminder of the predicament that Israel was in, that they had this unintentional defilement because they, despite their even individual sins, they themselves were sinners. And there was nothing that they could do about that. Does that mean that obedience to this command didn't matter? That uh, it didn't matter if you you know practiced the day of atonement, no big deal, you could just skip it if you wanted to? No, it was a commandment. You had to do it. But Hebrews reminds us that it wasn't accomplishing what Israel hoped it would because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The sacrifice isn't good enough. It isn't effective enough to truly cleanse from sin. And here's the deal. The Old Testament had hinted at this all along. So Psalms 40 verse 6 says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. And so at first that seems weird to us because we go, well, sure he required it. Of course he did. He commanded the people to do it. But the point he's making is he's saying it's, it's, it didn't work. It didn't fix the problem. Israel didn't atone for their sins through the Day of Atonement. Hosea um, points to a similar thing. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So what's he saying? He's saying, man, I don't want you to be in a situation where you have to sin and you have to do these things. And what I'm looking for is a people who's who have a steadfast love and a true knowledge of God. That's what I'm looking for. So just in the same way that we could say we need a better priest that we see in the bull sacrifice, maybe another thing to say is we need a better sacrifice. We need a sacrifice that will actually accomplish the atonement that we need. And so that brings us to this third sacrifice, this second goat that is sacrificed on the Day of the Atonement. And this one's the sort of interesting one. It's the weirder one because because those first two make a little bit of sense, I feel like. But this third one is is called, it's where we get the word, the scapegoat. All right? And this goat is given over to Azazel which is a weird thing. So let's look down at verse 20. This is in, uh, I, I don't have my, it's in uh, Leviticus 16. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel 
and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. All right. So that's, there's a strange passage right before that in verse nine. Look up to verse nine and it, it's a reference to that, that Azazel that we just said. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as the sin offering. But the goat on which the lot, other lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. All right, so here's the deal. We don't know exactly what Azazel is. Some people say, uh, scholars will say that it is, Azazel is actually a name for a demonic entity, right? That there is a being that is called Azazel. Other people say, no, it's not that Azazel is a entity. It is a place of the demonic. All right. So that's the connection there to this wilderness of Azazel, right? It is this place out in the darkness, out in the wilderness where the Israelites sort of had a a kind of superstitious kind of idea that in those barren wastelands was the domain of the demonic, right? That's where the demons dwelt. And so they're saying the Israelites are, are, are this one goat is being given over to the demonic or the place of the demonic. Now, the obvious question that maybe concerns us is at first we go, so are they offering one goat to God and one goat to a demon? Is that's what happening in this passage? That doesn't seem right. And it's not right. No, the goat is being sent out to that place, not to that person or entity. So what you could say is it's not an offering to them. It's a banishment to that place. So wherever this dark place that is the domain of the demonic, say that three times fast, um, that's where we're sending our sin. This place of banishment where, where we will never have to engage with it ever again. In the laying on of hands and the transmission symbolically of the sins of the people to this goat and then leading him away into the desert. So what is that showing us? That's It's talking about the way atonement works. Not only do we have to be cleansed through expiation and propitiation, but also what has to happen is sin has to be removed from the community. Sin has to be gotten rid of. Like we can't play this game where we sin however we want to, but we know that's because we can come over here and wash our hands and cleanse ourselves. And then we can go back and sin however we want to, and then we can come over here and wash our hands of it, right? There has been a stereotype of of the Catholic Church, that that's how the Catholic Church works, right? That you can go out and party on Saturday night as long as you come to confession the next Sunday morning and, you know, go into your little box and say your prayers and, and whatever, that you will be clean and so that you can turn around next Saturday and go do the exact same thing. And the reality is, is this. That may be a problem in the Catholic Church, but it's a problem in the Baptist Church, too. It's a problem in all churches. The idea that we can sin with impunity because we have a gracious God who just forgives, and that's what he does. And so that's his job. All right, I can do what I want because God's going to forgive me anyway. No big deal. And yet this goat 
represents the reality that no, we can't have that attitude towards sin. Sin can't be something that just gets cleaned up. It has to be something that is banished. It has to be something that we get rid of in our lives. Because here's something funny. You want to hear it? And it makes perfect sense with the illustration. We put all our sins on the goat. We banish that goat out into the wilderness. The guy leads it out into the wilderness and then he leaves it and he walks away and he goes home. Except guess what? Sometimes the goat would come back. Okay? Of course it would. Sometimes this goat who represented all of our sins would just go, I don't want to be out here in the wilderness. And he would wander and he would find his way back to the town, which is a perfect illustration. It got bad enough because the people recognized this is a bad thing. Like we don't want the goat coming back. So you know what they would do? They would take him out into the wilderness and they would push him off a cliff. They would find some place that they were like, all right, we can push him and not kill him, but also he won't be able to get back up and follow me home. So they would find a place like that and they'd push him to try to make sure the goat stayed where the goat was supposed to go. But sometimes the goat didn't stay there. The goat would come back, which is a perfect picture of the problem of this, of our sin and the problem of the fact that this goat is not fixing that. So I don't know if, if this is similar to other people's story, but when I made a profession of faith, when I was about 14 years old, um, I had made a profession laying in my bed one night, um, calling out to God and saying, I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to trust in Jesus Christ. And, and I had made that decision. And then about two weeks later, a friend of mine invited me to a, a youth revival at a local church. And so that was when I went and, and in the Baptist world, I made what was called my, you know, my profession, my public profession of faith, right? I walked down the aisle and I said, Hey, just to tell everybody I'm saved. Okay. I, I trusted in Jesus Christ. Well, they gave me this little book and it was called something like the new believers survival guide or something like that. And it had little kind of discipleship things in it. It was like, Hey, if you want to continue to grow in your faith, you need to be a part of a church, you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, you need to evangelize, you need to do all these things. And then the last chapter in the book had this interesting chapter. And it was weird at the time because I read this book, the whole thing through, like within the first few days of getting it. But it said this, it said, Hey, this is probably going to happen to you in a couple of weeks, maybe a month. You're going to, you're on this high right now of getting saved, but in a couple of weeks, that's going to wear off. And in fact, something may end up happening where you start to really doubt if you made a real profession of faith at all, if you've really trusted in Christ at all, because what's going to happen is sin is going to come crashing back into your life in some way. Um, these things that you thought you had beat and given up, this new life that you had embraced, you're going to find out that, you know what? That's not completely true in a sense. You haven't been able to banish all of your sin and live in complete faithfulness to God now. It's not going to, you're not going to be able to accomplish that. And so it was interesting that it sort of warned you about that. And when I read it, I mean, I remember being like a 14 year old kid. I was like, it's dumb. Like, I'm going to feel this way forever. Right. And then like six weeks later, I was like, man, I don't even know if I'm really a Christian because, you know, um, I keep on being a jerk to that person and I keep on doing this. And all these sins seem to still be plaguing me. So that's a picture of this reality is that we are not good at banishing sin. 
Sin has this tendency to keep on coming back. We know that as soon as we've left it and gotten rid of it, probably as soon as we think we have victory over that sin, that that sin will start finding ways to creep back into our life. And this was obviously the problem of Yom Kippur in itself. The hard reset happened because the day after Yom Kippur, people just started unintentionally sinning again. And that sin built up over the course of the whole year until the next year you had to do Yom Kippur all over again. And it started building up and you had to do it all over again. And so this, this again, this situation keeps on happening. And why? Well, Hebrews explains this for it, explains it for us. Hebrews 9, 9. It says, here's the problem. That sacrifice cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Isn't that a cool line? Talking about the Day of Atonement accidentally on Reformation Day. I think that's cool. Um, It cannot perfect your conscience. That's the problem with the the, the, Day of Atonement sacrifice of the Azazel scapegoat. It can't perfect your conscience. Your conscience is still the way it was. It was defiled. And so we would continue to sin. The reality is that those ceremonies are a placeholder. They're a pointer until the day when they are fulfilled. And I think the case is is this. Just like last week when we talked about the already not yet, the day of Yom Kippur is an already not yet festival. Because it has now. The day of reformation has come. The day of fulfillment has come. And that fulfillment is an already fulfillment, but it is also, in a sense, a not yet fulfillment. So how do we mean that? Well, first off is this, the the festival of trumpets we talked about last week, there was a line that would be said, and we mentioned it at the beginning. It was prepare to meet thy God, prepare to meet the Lord. Okay. In 10 days, we start blowing these trumpets and in 10 days, it's going to be the day of Yom Kippur. And that is when the high priest is going, going to go into the Holy of Holies and he is going to stand before the mercy seat, the throne of God. And we as a nation of Israel need to be prepared to meet our God on the Day of Atonement. Well, here's the reality. We have met our God. That has been fulfilled. We have met our God in the person of Jesus Christ. That the true God has come and taken on flesh. And we have experienced his presence. All right, We have known him. We have seen him. The the disciples touched him. The whole stories that come along with the resurrection. Right, We have met our God. Face-to-face now. The day of atonement has been fulfilled in that sense. We have met God, and it is the person of Jesus Christ. All right? And more than that, atonement now has been accomplished because Jesus has done all those things that we said the sacrifice couldn't do. Jesus has become a holy high priest. Jesus is a high priest who doesn't need to be cleansed of his sin. He doesn't need to sacrifice a bull before he stands before God. Why? Because he is already perfect. 
He is sinless as he is. He doesn't have to do this over and over again, year after year, millennia after millennia, century after century. He doesn't have to do that because Christ is without sin. He is the whole, he is the high priest that we've always needed. And moreover, much like we saw in the Passover, when we noticed that Jesus was both the sacrifice and the high priest in that, in, in the Passover, he is both the high priest and the sacrifice on the day of atonement. He is the better sacrifice. The Bible talks about the idea that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for sin. That there will never need to be another sacrifice for sin. There will be no point in the future in which we as a congregation have to be like, all right, get your goats out because we got to go down here and sacrifice them because the, the Lord requires a blood expiation of our guilt um, and Jesus isn't enough. That'll never be the case. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. The perfect, complete sacrifice has been made for us. And so we won't ever need another sacrifice. The sacrificial system is over because Jesus has completed it. The day of atonement is over because the perfect high priest has sacrificed the perfect sacrifice and there's no longer any need for that. All right? And then a third thing is that idea, again, of the banishment of our sin is we see an already sense of that in the fact that we have been now covered with the righteousness of Christ. So we talk about this over and over again when we use that word imputation. We talk about how Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, inputted in us, all right? To the effect that when God looks at you now, today, he sees Jesus Christ. Now, you may say, Ash, you don't know what I've done today. I've done some pretty awful things today. Certainly, God sees me in light of the awful things that I've done. And I'm going to tell you, he does not. He sees you in light of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. All right? Your sin has been banished as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says. That's a great illustration, right? You know how far the north is from the south? It's a certain distance. You go from north to south, and there's the distance there because you hit the poles, and then it goes down the other way. What's the distance from east to west? It's infinity. You never stop going east to west. The distance from the east to the west is there is no calculating it. That's how far your sin has been removed from you. Why? Because you are covered with the righteousness of Christ. And so Jesus is the better Azazel scapegoat, all right? He is the scapegoat that can actually banish your sin so that it is no longer in the picture in terms of your relationship with God, all right? Those are the already aspects of these things. And yet, because they're the fall festivals, because they're the festivals that are still in the future, because they're the not yet festivals, we recognize other things. One is that there is a day of atonement in a sense still to come. There is the day of judgment that is coming. There is a day when we will meet our God in a, a new way. For those who are in Christ, it will not be a day of condemnation, right? Because that day has already taken place in the already. Jesus Christ has died for our sins, and so there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
There will be a day of maybe reckoning, we could say. We talk about that all the time. But not a day of salvation, because our day of salvation has already happened at the cross of Christ. There will be a day where our works are judged, but not unto salvation, but only unto reward. But there is a day of judgment coming for the world. And that's that warning of the, of the, of the Feast of Trumpets to say, folks, time is running out. In a very short time, we will meet God and you need to be ready to meet him. And so there is an not yet sense to that side of, of the, of the day of Yom Kippur. And also, and we all experience this in our daily lives, we know that while we understand our sin has been separated from us, it has been paid for ultimately, past, present, and future. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, past, present, and future. And yet we know that on a daily basis, we continue to mess up. We know that our sin continues to bog us down. We know that it interferes with our fellowship with the Lord. We know that um, we continue to have to, even though our sin in an already sense has been banished, in a not yet sense, it is still very present with us. And so we look forward to that great final scapegoat Azazel day in which in eternity we will be perfected, that sin will be completely removed from our lives in the picture and that we will never have to deal with it again. We know that right now the old man is fighting against the new man the spirit-filled man in our own lives in league with Satan, right? Satan is part of that. And he is waging this spiritual version of a scorched earth campaign on our lives. He wants to destroy you. He wants to wreck your life. He wants to hurt your family. He wants to hurt your marriage. He wants to hurt your reputation. He is looking for any way to make you stumble, to hurt people in your life. Why? So that he can win your soul? Nope. If you're a believer, that's already over. That question, the war is already won. If Christ has you, he has you completely. And yet, Satan is saying, but I would like to do as much damage as I can in the meantime. Because he knows that the war is lost. He knows that his days are numbered. He knows that the not yet of Yom Kippur is totally seen in light of the already of Yom Kippur. And so that's where we find ourselves in this second to last festival is that Jesus is our day of atonement. In a sense, not in a sense, actually, the day of atonement and Passover were the same day. They both happened at the cross. And so we have a perfect Passover lamb in Jesus Christ, and we have the perfect day of atonement sacrifice in Jesus Christ. We have the perfect high priest that offers up the lamb at Passover, and we have the perfect high priest who offers up um, the perfect sacrifice of himself on the day of atonement. All right, and so um, as, as we go, as we close here, and as we go into a time of prayer, again, it, 
I just want us to revel in those things, right? Um, there's a whole lot of chunks to grab onto in there. And I hope it's stuff that we say and talk about enough that you are already firm in those things. Like, I hope you understand what it means to bear the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. Not because you've done everything right, but because Christ's life has covered you. I hope you know what it means to have Christ sacrificed so that you could be cleansed from your sin. I hope that you understand that what he did was to expiate and propitiate and atone for your sin. He's not just a good example. I think we know those things. And yet they're, it's, it's emphatic that we be reminded of them because it gives us a fuller picture of who God is and what he has done and the great mercy and grace that we have been shown. In Jesus Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Again, I would encourage you to go to Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. Uh, maybe read that in the next day or so. Um, just to reflect on it yourself, because like all these other festivals, man, we could talk about these things for weeks. Because these festivals represent the key themes of the entire Christian faith. Um, they're not just little interesting facts and interesting things. They are the center. They are the core. They are the things that God was painting a picture of his whole plan for his people all throughout history, and they have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, we'll have uh, our worship leaders come and close for us. Father God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for um, the unfathomable grace that we have been shown in Jesus Christ. God, the fact that you are a God who has shown yourself to be a God of mercy, that your throne is a mercy seat, God, that everything that you have done, that you have shown grace and love to your people at great cost to yourself, at great personal cost to Jesus Christ. Because of your great love for us, a love that we do not deserve, God, that we could have never merited, that we could have never earned in any way, shape, or form, and yet you have given it freely so that we could be saved. God, help us to remind ourselves of these truths each and every day. God, if we feel distant from you, help us to remember who we are in Jesus Christ. When we sin, God, help us to recognize the ugliness of our sin and to turn from it and to rush to Jesus Christ. God, help us to worship the great high priest who has made the perfect sacrifice for our souls. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Uh, we've got one more um, festival, uh, the uh, the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. Um, like I said at the beginning, we're going to take a one-week break um, as, as uh, Cody comes and shares with us next week. Then we'll close up in two weeks um, uh, with uh, the last of the festivals. And um, looking forward to that. It's, again, a beautiful picture of how the, all these things fit together. So I hope you can be here for that in two weeks. Um, have a great week. I feel like I'm forgetting something that somebody told me to say, but but I don't know what it is. So um, have a great week. Here's benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.